Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. As a writer, I get to sit and figure out all this stuff, but then I get to hand it to somebody else and hide behind them like a human shield as they go out there and either sink or swim, especially like a four-camera show with an audience. I've watched people just bomb with my jokes, and I go walking up, I go, sorry about that, (laughs) we'll try another one. And it's all the egg is on their face, but as a comic, you have to both come up with it and perform it, and it seems absolutely terrifying and i know the work that these guys do and the guild going on the road and honing the act and it just i don't think there's a harder job out there um and one that should be um thought of higher than than the stand-up Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Hope you had an amazing, amazing Christmas or Hanukkah, Kwanzaa or whatever you celebrate. And most importantly, I want to wish you all a really wonderful, wonderful and happy new year. I truly wish you all the best that life has to offer. I'm so grateful for everything that you guys have done for the podcast, and I just can't thank you enough. And if you ever need to reach me, you can do so at barrycats.com. You can get a hold of me there, or at barrycats at Instagram or Twitter, and I'll be sure to reach you back and answer all your questions, hopefully as soon as I can. And I'm really excited about this first episode that's going to cross over into the new year with my guest, Greg Garcia. This guy is a incredible force of nature in the entertainment business, well-loved, well-respected, and just a real, real extraordinary and special man. And without further ado, I'm going to introduce him. And then you can enjoy part one of this episode and then come back on Thursday and get part two. So here we go. After growing up in Virginia, Greg Garcia graduated from Frostburg State University in 1992. After moving to Los Angeles in 1993, Garcia was accepted into the Warner Brothers writing program. After working as a production assistant on the sitcom Step by Step, he got his first job writing on the comedy series On Our Own. Two years writing on Family Matters, and then he co-created the ironically named series Built to Last with Warren Hutchinson, one of the most respected stand-up comedians and showrunners out there, which lasted only three episodes on NBC. Garcia was later signed to an overall deal at 20th Century Fox Television, where he served as co-executive producer on Getting Personal and subsequently as a consulting producer on Family Guy with Seth MacFarlane. Garcia, along with the late Alan Kirschenbaum, then co-created and executive produced the CBS hit Yes, Dear, which ran for 122 episodes. In 2005, Garcia created 
the critically acclaimed My Name is Earl. His work on the series received an Emmy Award for Outstanding Writing in a Comedy Series and the People's Choice Award for Favorite New TV Comedy. In addition, he received a GLAAD Award and a Humanitas Award for the pilot episode, a Television Critics Association Award for Best New Comedy, a Golden Globe nomination for Best Television Series, Musical, or Comedy, and four WGA nominations for Outstanding Achievement in Writing for Comedy. Greg also created the series Raising Hope, which ran for four seasons on Fox. The show also received the GLAAD Award and was nominated for both a People's Choice Award and for Favorite New TV Comedy, as well as a Television Critics Association Award for Outstanding Achievement in Comedy. He is currently the creator, executive producer, writer, director of The Guest Book, which was the number one new cable comedy of 2017 and recently finished its second season on TBS. It should be noted that Garcia writes all the episodes himself and has directed eight of the 20. With Yes Dear, My Name is Earl, and Raising Hope, Garcia is one of the only writers to create three back-to-back-to-back sitcoms that have gone into syndication. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. What an honor. Greg Garcia. Uh-oh. That's a lot of pressure. I am a huge fan of your podcast, so it's a thrill for me to be sitting here with you uh, doing this. Thank you very much for having me. Shocking. Shocking that you would listen to this podcast. No, because you have on like these incredible people. First of all, you're incredibly interesting and entertaining and have amazing stories. But you have on these amazing people that everybody has heard of. Or you have people from the industry that have done amazing things that like I know and I've worked with. So it's a combination of being able to listen to like people I admire and, and, and I'm big fans of and people that I know and I get to learn more about. And uh, so it's a real thrill for me. I, I really enjoy the show. It's so unbelievably humbling. I look around the walls here and see what you've accomplished. A man who has created three shows that went to syndication consecutively. It's like when you sit across somebody in their field like Jeremy Piven, three consecutive Emmy Awards. Yeah. How many people can say they have three shows that went to syndication? Yeah, it's, it's a, I'm proud of it. I'm, I won't lie to you. I'm proud of it. That's not easy to do. Um, went on a nice little run there um, uh, with, with Yes, Dear, and, and My Name is Earl and Raising Hope. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a group effort, those shows, as you know. I mean, it's, it's a collaborative process with the writers and the actors and, and, and everybody. So uh, it's certainly not anything I did on my own by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, it, is, it is something to, uh, to be proud of. And I think the best thing about having your shows in syndication is they live on, you know. And, uh, and, and that is quite a treat for you to, to know that uh, a new audience can find a My Name is Earl and a Raising Hope and something you did just isn't dead and gone. That's the coolest part of it to me, is, is, is reaching that, that milestone so uh, new audiences can keep finding it. When you get shows that go to syndication, for our audience, just to let you know, what that meant 10, 15 years ago was that a show would normally have to hit 100 episodes to get the order for syndication. Now, there's exceptions to the rules, like The Honeymooners was like 39 episodes, and that went to syndication. Yeah. There's been shows in the past that have been less, but traditionally that was the model. Now the model is sometimes you can go to syndication when you don't do 100 episodes, but all your shows did do at least 100 episodes. Well, no, actually, you know, it's funny because only one of my shows got to 100. Yes, dear, it got to 122. Uh, my Name is Earl got the rug pulled out from it at 96. You know, the funny thing is is that that it, it, it has been 100 episodes for a long time that everybody thinks it's 100, and it is a benchmark episode to do that. But technically, technically, the number, at least it used to be, is 88. There's something with the number 88 
where when it goes on to WGN or you know your local channel, there's something about 88 episodes. Well, 88 used to be essentially an order for television. You got 13 in your initial first yep. order, and then you got picked up for the back nine. You so got 22, you 22 a, year. a year. What the network and the studios started doing, first year, 22. Second year, 25. Third year, 25. Fourth year, 27. Yeah. And that's how they got to 100. Yeah, and they'll keep loading them on. But something like Raising Hope, it only went 88 episodes. And the reason I think it went 88 episodes and got that fourth season is they've already invested three years into this thing. Um, They're not going to make money off of it unless they can syndicate it. It's a 20th Century Fox-owned television show on the Fox Network channel. They're going to give it that fourth season and get it to 88 episodes. And for whatever reason... 88 was the number that you needed to reach the minimum number of syndication. Now, anything over that is better. You know, 100 is better than 88. But uh, that show actually got to, to 88, and that got it syndicated. And what's odd is the studio or studios and the network have to make that decision. And the way you describe it, it seems like an easy decision. But when your show costs, let's just pretend it costs $2.9 million an episode. Yeah. Let's just round it off the three sure. in these days and times. So 22 times 3 million. Okay, so that's $66 million. So the studios and the network have to decide if they go to the 88 episodes, will they make that money back? Yep. Or yep. will they not make and it back a, along with the other money? There's a bunch of guys sitting in a room crunching those numbers. And that's when... Being owned by the network that you're on can be a plus or a minus because in Raising Hope's situation, it was a plus because they wanted to get that that number. They crunched the numbers. They know it made sense. We will make money eventually if we get this extra season, and that's why we got an extra season, even though the ratings weren't stellar. On a show like The Millers, which I did for CBS that was owned by CBS, halfway through the second season, they looked at the ratings. They looked at what this show cost. And the same people in a room somewhere figured out the numbers and they said, if we pull the plug right now, it's better for us if we finish the season. Now, if that show had been produced by Warner Brothers, they wouldn't care about the deficit that Warner Brothers is going in. They'll cancel it after the second season. But because they were looking at the numbers, they knew we're going to get out of this thing halfway through a season. And in that case, it actually hurts you to be owned by the same uh, company. Yes, dear was a show that was a fastball right down the middle. Yeah. In essence, very traditionally put together. And if I may be so bold, if anyone were to study your work now and look at that and they have no names on it and they put all your work together of those three syndicated shows, but they don't know that you're involved and they have some names there, and they put your name up, and they say, which ones would you associate with Greg Garcia? Well, they would say, my name is Earl. They would say Raising Hope. They would say the guest book. They certainly would not say yes, dear. No, it would not be lumped in. And, you know, the reason behind that is, and I've had this conversation with people before, because it, it is a glaring, you know, it is, it is very different. You know, and I think it's a combination of things. I mean, you can say that uh, Yes, Dear, I wrote uh, very early in my career. Uh, The other stuff was later and and what have you. But I think the truth of the matter, what it comes down to is when you come up with a sitcom and you're selling it to a particular network, your job is to have that show work on that network. They're going to put it on a time of night between two other shows and you need it to work. And we wanted to do a show about parenting and we wanted to do it for CBS. So when you are in between Everybody Loves Raymond and King of Queens, you wanna do a show that is going to work in between those two shows. You don't wanna do the exact same show, but you wanna do something you think that will work. So first of all, you're gonna make it for camera because single camera was not the thing on CBS by any stretch. You know, you're not going to do Malcolm in the Middle. You're going to do a four-camera sitcom. So I think that's part of it as well, you know. Um, And then once you're doing it, it's working. You stick with the formula that's working. And, you know, that show, 122 episodes. It's the longest-running show I've ever had. But then what happens is 
I start to watch Bernie Mac show, uh, Arrested Development, these single camera comedies, and I like them. And I like the way they look, and I think, you know, I want to write on one of these shows. When Yes, Dear runs its course, and it was getting towards the end, I wanted to be uh, considered to be a writer on one of these single camera shows. So I wrote My Name is Earl as a spec script just because I thought, I want to show these guys. I don't want them to look at my resume and go, okay, he's a four-camera guy. Which is what they do. Oh, 100% is what they do, and I'm guilty of it as well. And, 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 and you know, you can't get... You can't get past it, unfortunately. You look at what somebody's done in the past, and you judge them on it, you know, for good or for bad. And I know some. I knew Mitch running Arrested Development, who I didn't know. If I sent Mitch him, Hurwitz, Mitch Hurwitz. So if I sent him my stuff and my resume, he would go, "Okay, the guy wrote on Family Matters, and and he created a show called Built to Last, which was for camera, and and he did Yes, Dear." Why would he be good for my show? So I knew I needed to write myself out of that hole in a way. So I wrote My Name is Earl Pilot, just as a spec, because I wanted... Your first shows that you wrote on, Step by Step, Family Matters, Mm -hmm. and then Yes, Dear. And if you put those three together... They all make sense. So your lane, you created this lane. Nobody created it for you. You created the lane. Yeah. And you created a lane for yourself, which is odd for me because I sit across from you and I don't know you, but I have this instinct that before you saw the Bernie Mac show, you had this thing in you, but you chose to take the gig, the affiliation in shows that were more straight down the middle. You didn't choose to take an affiliation at shows that were single camera. You chose the affiliation of the mainstream family show. Well, I mean, choose is a is an interesting word because, you know, I and and I would not do anything to alter the path that I've had in this career because I've worked with some amazing people and I've learned so much and I love those shows. I think Family Matters was a great show and I love doing Yes Dear. Um, but before I did Yes Dear, you know, you don't really choose your first job. You 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 struggle and try to claw. And I was in the Writers Brother Warner Brothers Writers Workshop, and uh, and they weren't sending me out for any interviews for for to be a writer. And I saw some people walking into a uh, into an office across the street from the Warner Brothers Workshop, and I followed them in afterwards. And I talked to a guy named Dave Duclan, and I just put my script on his desk, and he was doing a show called On Our Own, which was actually my first job. Now. Yeah, if that had been Mitch Hurwitz and he was doing Arrested Development at the time, maybe I would have started on that path. But you just try to get your first job. And mine happened to be with the Miller Boyette TGIF Friday shows. And I was, trust me, I was happy to have them, especially growing up watching four camera shows. That's when Jay Moore did the interstitials for TGIF. Oh, did he? Yeah. That was, thank God, it's Friday, ABC lineup. What were the four shows that night? Oh, it was Step by Step was in there, and Family Matters, and Full House, and then they'd have a roving, like they'd put different ones, like I think Sister, Sister, and different ones, and that, and that's, so that's where I got my start. And you were a writer's assistant to start, or what did you do to start? I was a writer's PA on the show Step by Step, so I would give, before email, I would drive all the scripts around. I was email for Step by Step. I would drive those around. For our audience who are starting... Listen to that. This person sitting across from me found an affiliation. Didn't matter what it was, getting coffee, delivering scripts. Once he was in the door, as Larry King would say, someone's going to get sick. Someone's not going to show up. Someone's not going to do the job. And if you're in there, you're in. Exactly. And my my, my whole point was, I'm going to get around the writers. So I got a job as a writer's production assistant I got them lunch I did their dishes I delivered their scripts and I did everything I could without being too heavy-handed to let them know I was funny and I wanted to write so if there was a joke to be made in the kitchen I made it you know and very subtly I tried to um, make myself known and and because of that they gave my script to their agents and 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 I actually uh, got some momentum okay now back then yeah you decided as you were in there to write your first spec script. I guess you wouldn't call it a spec script if you wrote a script for the show you were on doing writer's PA work for. 
did you show them a script that was a spec script or a script of their show no, that you wrote? I would never show somebody a spec script of their actual show. It would be too, they, they, they'd have too many um, problems with it. You know, I don't think that's ever a good idea to show somebody's a spec script of their own show. Has anybody ever done that to you and you hired them? I don't think I've ever read one because if I'm doing the show, I don't want to read it because I don't want them to now say, oh, you stole that idea from me. We have, you know, when you're when you're doing a show, you have 50 ideas on the board that you haven't figured out yet. So chances are somebody's going to write a spec script that could somehow come up against that in some way. And the last thing I want is somebody to think we stole their ideas. So when you're delivering scripts, washing dishes, you go home and you decide you're going to write a spec script to show them you can do it. What's the spec script that you write, what show, and how long into your dishwashing delivery assignment did you decide, I'm ready to hand something to them? I had a Friends and a Seinfeld at the time. Those were the big, big shows. Had you written them before you took the show? I had written one before I took the show as a production assistant and one that I was writing at night uh, when I would go home. So I kind of had two samples, which is a good thing to have. Um, and But I wasn't really happy with one of them. So I think I was only showing the Seinfeld, actually. Which is odd that you would show the Seinfeld to the Miller Boyette people because they don't do shows like that. But the Friends show would be much more accommodating to them to see that you could write for them. That's yeah. a really strange choice that you did. I that. just felt stronger about it, you know. And I don't even know if I was showing it to them as much as I was. I was showing it to the writers just to kind of get advice, you know. And if anybody's ever working on a writing staff as a production assistant and they want to show their script to the writers always go with the lower level writers because they have been in your shoes more recently. They, when somebody asks them to read a script, all of a sudden, you know, two years ago, they were the person asking people to read their script. So they're, they're enthusiastic about it. They're honored. They want to do it. And so you start with them and then hopefully they like it and push it up a little bit above them. Again, this is one of those things that technically doesn't make sense and I'll tell you why. Okay. But it's the right thing to do, but it can backfire. The low-level writers have just gotten the gig. Sometimes it's a writing team that's making half the money because they have to split the fee. Sure. After taxes, commission, $6 in a bucket of chicken. They're there, technically, if they're a baby writer or a new writer, this is their first year. A lot of times it's their first job. They are walking on eggshells. They want to keep their job. Mm -hmm. They don't want you to they take their to job. They want to move up. They don't want you to take their job. So giving them a spec script to read and tell you if it's good or not, when you give it to them, they know what your intentions are. They know you want the gig they have. They know if that script gets to the people above and they like it better than these guys are doing, then you're going to take their job. So it takes a very special young baby writer to give it to that you assess and know that they have so much confidence and no fear that they will read it and give you a great opinion. But in my thought process, most are not going to help you and give you a good opinion. It's an excellent point, and I should probably clarify, too, because when I gave it to people, I did not give it to the staff writers, and probably for that exact reason. I would go a little bit above. You get your story editor, your executive story editor. They got a couple credits under their belt. They're established. They're not terrified. I don't bother the co-executive producer and the executive producer with it, but you have an excellent point, and I would not I would steer clear of the baby writer because they absolutely may feel like you're going to take their job. And what I got lucky with is a couple of them, two of the writers gave my script to their agents. One agent was a guy named Ken Neiser at Gersh, and the other agent was a guy at William Morris named Aaron Kaplan. Of course. And Aaron Kaplan now runs Kaplan Entertainment. Every pilot, it seems like, is Aaron Kaplan. And Wendy Trilling from CBS yes, moved working, over there. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Who was at CBS for probably 25 oh, years. Long, worked with her for, for forever. And so Ken Neiser said to me, I'm going to sign you off this script. And Aaron Kaplan said, I like this script. I want to read a second one. 
And I, at the time, I didn't have a second one I was happy with. So I thought, well, I'll just go with this guy, Ken Neiser. And so that's who became my agent. And so then he hustled and, uh, and, and helped me along with a, writer's, a Warner Brothers writing program that I got in. Again, I went through it twice um, where I got my first job. The next time you ran into Aaron Kaplan... I don't know if I have run into Aaron Kaplan okay. since. I w I've been on uh, pilots where he uh, is around, um, but I've I've gone and helped through doing punch up and stuff because I'm friends with the writers. But uh, I have not run into him. But I would love to, and and he won't remember that at all. But I will definitely remind him of it and uh, and wish him well because he's doing uh, he's doing amazing stuff. He's quite the salesman. I say that because your Emmy speech, oh, one of the funniest <laughs> speeches. I have ever heard in the history of my career. That was a fun night because, you know, you don't know if you're going to win or not. You certainly hope you're going to win. Um, and so I had a little speech prepared because I wanted to actually have a little fun up there. How many times have you been nominated before that? Oh, that's it. One time. One nomination, one win. That's it. Haven't been nominated since. Hadn't never been nominated before. Certainly I hadn't done anything that was on the radar for 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 the Emmys, uh, you know, not the shows I was working on weren't weren't you know Emmy Emmy shows, um, so it was all a new experience. And who were you me. up against that year? Do you remember? I think I was up against Ricky Gervais was one of the people, and I'd have to look up the other one. So I'm not I'm not I mean uh, there might have been a Curb Your Enthusiasm enthusiasm in there. There could have been an Arrested Development in there. Um, I'd have to really go back and. And look, but you when know, you walked off, were your representatives all pissed off? Your lawyer, your agents, your managers nah, all nobody, pissed off that you didn't mention them. Nah, nobody seemed to be upset. I mean, I, I really wanted to like <laughs> take the moment and see if I could get a couple laughs, and and it was that to me. Given that speech and getting the laughs in that room and the response that the speech got, the next day there was a there was an article in the L.A. Times about the speech. That to me meant way more than the Emmy meant to me it was funny how that eclipsed because i thought oh you get this trophy for writing and it's going to be amazing but the response i got for the speech surprisingly meant way more to me than anything else i mean i walked off stage and conan o'brien who was hosting looked at me and he goes how am i supposed to follow that <laughs> and and for me you know i was telling you i have so much respect for stand-up comedians and when i saw that i said to myself this guy has cast iron timing. If I were to compare stand-up comedy to a sport, I'd compare it to hockey. Yeah. Because hockey is a game of timing and inches. Love hockey. In basketball, you can miss a shot. Somebody can just go. It'll bounce around. In football, it can be an overthrow. I can tip it, knock it up, and do whatever. But in hockey, it's the timing, and that's the thing about it. And so with stand-up, I think it's very hard to find the combination. When I saw you on stage, I thought, this guy looks like he's been a stand-up for 25 years. <laughs> well, it was fun. But and explain the comedy thing, because well, I think it's to, fascinating. Just because, to me, I mean, I grew up loving stand-up comedy. I, you know, I, I loved, I, as a young kid in the fifth grade, we had a substitute teacher who told me that I reminded her of... Um, somebody she saw on The Tonight Show, Jerry Seinfeld. And I didn't know who Jerry Seinfeld was. So I got a TV in my room and I started watching The Tonight Show at night. It was old black and white TV. It didn't have a headphone jack. I would roll up a mad magazine and put it by the speaker and put my ear next to it and watch it kind of out of the corner of my eye so my parents didn't know I was still awake. And I would wait for Jerry Seinfeld to come back. But in the meantime, I would watch Johnny every night. I would watch other stand-ups come on. I would see the people on the TV shows that I love actually as people being interviewed. It was amazing to me. And eventually, Seinfeld came back on, and I watched him, and I thought, holy shit. Somebody, an adult, thought that in some weird way I said something that reminded me. Like, that gave me all the confidence in the world. Um that I thought I was funny, and I thought maybe I could pursue something in comedy ultimately one day. But the reason I have so much respect for comics is, you know, if you ask me, like, what's the hardest jobs in, in show business? Some people have said, like, all right, well, you've, you've written, you've directed, what's harder? And I always say writing because you start with nothing. Like, directing is very hard, but you start with something, you have instructions, you have a script, there's somewhere to go. Now, some directors have said to me, yeah, but sometimes nothing is better than what I'm handed. But I, in, as a general rule, you have instructions. So I always say writing is up there because you have to pull it out of your ass and just come up with a whole new thing and figure it out. But the comic 
not only has to write the material, but then they have to get up there and perform it by themselves. I mean, as a writer, I get to sit and figure out all this stuff, but then I get to hand it to somebody else and hide behind them like a human shield as they go out there and either sink or swim, especially like a four camera show with an audience. I've watched people just bomb with my jokes and I go walking up, I go, sorry about that, <laughs> we'll try another one. And it's all the egg is on their face, but as a comic, you have to both come up with it and perform it, and it seems absolutely terrifying. And I know the work that these guys do, and the going on the road and honing the act, and it just—I don't think there's a harder job out there, um, and one that should be um, thought of higher than than the stand-up. And I think it's amazing. And I've had people like ask me, like, "Oh, did you did you do stand-up or whatever?" Because I love to tell stories. I love to get up at a wedding and give a speech and I, I like to I like, loved your wedding speech which you sent me that was fantastic <laughs> did, yeah and it's fun and, and 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 the immediate feedback that's fun and people have asked me why have you done stand-up and I do think that at some point I'm going to try it in the sense of just go up at an open mic and try it I've decided that I'm not going to do it I'm 48 now I'm not going to try it until I'm 50 because on the off chance that it's I'm I'm at all at all okay at it and I have my doubts I think I'll be terrible but I want to just say that I did it one time but I would rather people go you know he didn't start till he was 50 48 doesn't sound that great but it says hey he didn't start till he was 50 give him a break <laughs> hey everybody I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am if you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business that's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Hey everybody, I've talked a lot about AquaTrue on this show, the amazing water purification system that's literally a miniature water cooler in your home that purifies the water in a way that no one else has ever figured out how to do. It's this incredibly efficient piece of equipment and it gives you the best tasting water you can ever imagine for pennies. You just take it out of the box, plug it in, put your tap water in it, and it takes out all the bad chemicals and gives you the best and healthiest water you can ever imagine, saving you thousands of dollars each year from buying bottled water in the store. I have one at my house and office, and everyone who uses it orders one, and you should too. Just go to industrystandardwater.com and type in the promo code Barry, and if you act now, you can get $100 off and start enjoying the best and most cost-effective water you've ever had, and never waste another dollar buying bottled water again. I just want to share another groundbreaking product with you. It's a revolutionary air purifier that will change the way your home operates. And I'm talking about the air doctor. The air inside our home can be up to a hundred times more polluted than the air outside. But with the air doctor, you don't have to worry about it as it removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses and so many other contaminants that circulate throughout our homes. Till now, the only thing that could come close to this product were systems that cost thousands of dollars. But now you can get the Air Doctor for a fraction of the cost, normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon. But for a limited time, I can give you 50% off and save you $300. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and get rid of all the bad toxins in your home. I'm telling you, I have this product. It really, really works. So get one now and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air you can ever imagine. 
I want to tell you an idea I have for you. Yeah. And this is putting my manager hat on. I like it. On your 50th birthday. Yeah. You're going to book a theater. A theater that you would want if you had a dream of everything being perfect. And you could see yourself as a stand-up doing comedy 10 years or whatever it is. And filming your first one-hour special. It's going to be in that theater. You're going to rent that theater. And if that's too much money, get the second choice or the third choice. Uh-huh. Okay? So you find the theater on your 50th birthday. Okay? Yeah. You invite all of the people you know in your life way in advance. You're going to have a 50th birthday party. And there's going to be a filming. They're not going to know what it is or anything like that. Yeah. There's going to be a filming. And you need to get here at this time, and after the filming will be the 50th birthday celebration and dinner in a place right next door, and that's what it is. And then with the remaining amount of audience, you fill that with great people who want to see a great show. Okay? This sounds terrifying. Yes, it's very terrifying. (laughs) Between now and your 50th birthday, you're going to write an hour of stand-up comedy. Uh Uh-huh. And you're going to do little things maybe where you test it out. Maybe you don't tell anybody, but maybe you go to a few places, just test out a few jokes here yeah. where nobody knows you. Maybe you'd say, hey, I'm going to Florida for three days. And then you just test something out and here and there and how it's going to work. Uh-huh. But if you don't want to do that, I think it's even better because something tells me after watching the Emmy speech and watching the best man speech that your best work is done for the first time in stand-up on your feet. I'm not saying writing. I'm not saying you write a script and then it just goes up and you don't change anything you do. But when you're a performer watching those two pieces, and I'm a savant when it comes to Uh stand-up, you're one of the few people where your strength is... I'm going out there under this thing and I've never done it before and I'm going to blow these people the fuck away. That's what you did at the Emmys. That's what you did for eight minutes at that wedding speech. Killed. Killed like nobody I've ever seen before. Never done the material before. Never knew. Didn't have a piece of paper in front of you. And so for those two years, what I would really like to see you do is prepare on your own for that hour. You can have a teleprompter if you want with the bullet points. Yeah. And then all the people are in the audience and then somebody comes out like a warm-up comic and says, you don't know what's happening tonight, but Greg is filming his first hour special <laughs> here tonight on his 50th birthday. You know what? You know what I And think. you do it and then you go out and you sell it and you will sell it and you'll be the first stand-up comedian in the history of comedy and television to have a one-hour special that was shot on their first time on stage ever. This is, let me tell you a few things about that. Because there's things that I love about it and things that are absolutely terrifying about it. And let me try to um, articulate what that is. First of all, if what you just described happened, there, there is something great about that. There are two ways it could go in my mind that night. One, where in a perfect world and you visualize it, you go on and you kill. Okay? You kill. Which would probably make it the greatest night of my life. Let's forget marriage and, and kids and stuff. That's a different category. The greatest night of my life if I go on and I kill. Or... I go on and I bomb, which to me, still not terrible because I've filled the room full of people that I love and respect and they're friends of mine. And if I go on and bomb, it becomes the greatest night of their life (laughs) because I think it would just be hilarious. Um, So that's all good. My here, here is my hesitancy. I think, and it's always been my, 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 my feeling of like why I don't want to get up there and it's w- what my fear is. I have so much respect for comedians um, and what they do that to get up there and pretend you're going to do it and be good at it, having not done it for years and grinding and figuring it all out, 
I would fear would be insulting. Just the act of attempting it, I fear in a way would be insulting. I wouldn't go try to fly a plane. I wouldn't go to try be a professional athlete. You know, I wouldn't try to go do these things that require a lot of work and dedication and a lifetime of, 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 of hard work and just assume, oh, I'm going to be able to do this. Whether I sink or swim, just to, just to have, just to stand up there, my fear is, is that it's, that I might be insulting my heroes. When you hired Anthony Clark for Yes, Dear. Yeah. Were you insulting thespians who've gone to <laughs> Juilliard, who spent their whole lives working as actors, grinding it out and giving it to a stand-up comedian who was working at Ha Ha's Chuckle Hut? Yes, I probably was. Were you insulting <laughs> actors? Probably not. I, I, think, uh, I think if I was to do something like that, the first step, like you said, would be, you know, uh, get up somewhere and get over that, you know, I think, you know, it's like jumping into a cold pool. I mean, it's 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 terrifying, which is why I have so much respect for them. So I think the first step would be to get up there and see if there's actually something there. I think the first step, if I were you, what I would actually do, which is kind of odd because I probably wouldn't recommend this to anybody, but because a lot of people like to find their own process, but we're in the business and we have an advantage. I would call Neil Brennan. Here's a guy who was writing, and his brother did stand-up comedy yeah. for 20 years. He watched his brother millions of times, never went on stage, and then finally decided to do it, knowing that the guy who he worked with... Imagine starting stand-up, knowing that the guy that you work with, that you garnered your greatest success with, is a genius who's on the Mount Rushmore of comedy right sure. now. Yeah. So... I think he'd be a great guy to... Uh, he's to, an amazing guy, too. That three mics special, uh, amazing. Yeah. Amazing, yeah. You didn't know this podcast was going this direction. No, I don't mind it, though. I mean, look, I mean, I'd be lying to you if it's not something that is still... You know, I, I, I'm a big guy of lists, right? I, I write lists, and that's what I do, and I always have three lists, and I tell people... I tell my kids, I tell people starting to do anything right out of college, make three lists. All you need to do is make three lists to make your dreams come true. The first list you put crazy things just anything you want to do it doesn't matter and on my list would be stand do stand-up comedy and then also on my list would have been create tv shows and and just buy a house and get married whatever these things i want long-term goals and then i make another list of all the things i need to do to make those things happen you know so if it's create a show well you need to write a spec script first then you need to Get it to an agent. And then you need to get your first job and your second job. And it's all the little things you need to make the big things happen. And then I have a third list that just says Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And I look at the list behind this one and I go, okay, what can I do to get closer to these things? You know, what can I do to get closer to writing a spec script? Okay, so on Monday, I need to figure out a story. You know, whatever. And then you find... You, as you cross off things on each list, then all of a sudden you cross off something on the second list. And then a year goes by and you finally get to cross off something on the big list, you know. And I've had these lists for a long time. And yeah, stand up is, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, even, it's even, you feel stupid even admitting it, but stand up is on that list. So we'll see. Pretend you're Earl. Okay. Tell me the first thing on your list to undo you know what the first thing that comes to mind maybe because i did undo it during earl inspired by the show and it wasn't a horrible thing which was kind of like earl too because we never have them do horrible horrible things because you're on network tv you can only come back from so much but the first thing that came to my mind was i borrowed a girl's car in college once uh, a, a chevelle chevy chevelle i guess and 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 i took i drove it to washington dc and she was nice enough to let me use it. And I drove it back and halfway back to Frostburg State University. It broke down on the freeway. And um, I had to hitchhike back. And I told her, I said, your car broke down. And she says, oh, my gosh, I can't tell my dad. He'll know I loaned it to somebody. And I said, well, we'll just let me know when and we'll go back there and we'll figure it out. And she says, okay. And about a week went by and she still hadn't said anything. Another week. And I said, hey. And she was, no, no, we will. We will. I've been busy. Finally, we get into another person's car. We drive back there to get it and everything. And it's just gone. It's gone. And she never saw that car again, ever. And she goes, I'll just have to 
explain it to my dad. I don't know. And then that was that. And as a college... What did you do to make up to her? So as a college student, you're just like... I can't even believe at the time I was just like, okay, if you're cool with it, whatever. I mean, she lost her car. You didn't pay her back or I didn't pay her anything. And so it's years later when we're in the writer's room on Earl and everybody's going around and saying bad stuff that they've done to see if we can use it on the show, obviously. And I brought up that story and then I was like, well, I should... So I I found her, I got in touch with her and um, I did not give her a car. Uh, She didn't need a car, but I bought her whatever the best computer was at the time. She needed a computer. So I bought her some Apple computer and I felt uh, and I felt uh, and she said it didn't need to be done the car was terrible and blah 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 but uh, I felt better about hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition whether you want to do stand-up sketch improv acting writing producing directing radio social media influencing or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. About that, so uh, I would say that that's the first thing that comes to mind for sure. You talk about risk. These shows are not built technically, formulaically, and blueprint-wise to last the distance, in my humble opinion. Okay, but two did, and one's on its second season. This is the reason why, I think. Let's just take one randomly, Raising Hope. Mm-hmm. The premise of it in the beginning, the guy finds the baby, brings the baby home, says, I'm raising the baby. The guy is one half step behind the rest of the Absolutely. world. Absolutely. Aimless, hasn't found his purpose in life. Yes. But you have a show where he's growing, the child's growing, the family's growing, and I know what you're saying, Barrett. Well, in Two and a Half Men, the kid grew and the show went. Mm-hmm. But the main characters stayed ironclad, mostly the same. But you also had a young guy. He was growing, physically sure. changing the way he was. Then you have Cloris Leachman, who is probably, when you hired her, was probably 90 or 85. <laughs> she was a, she was probably in her mid mid 80s, mid to low 80s, but yeah. And so you have a lot of risky factors in the show and the child's growing and it's very hard to keep the tone the same, but you rally around these shows where there's these different components that keep changing. No one seems to have the footing or the grasp to rally around every character for the life of the show because they're changing a lot of people no matter how much they want to admit it they want to change but they don't change yeah and they feel more comfortable without change and so i think your shows are always dangerously risky and have less of a chance to succeed but they have it's funny it's funny that you say that because you know i've been lucky that they have succeeded to an extent but, you know, when you talk about My Name is Earl and Raising the Hope, they didn't make it to 100. They, 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 they just barely got to syndication, you know. And so something like a Big Bang Theory where you turn it on every week and you know from a look what somebody's going to say. There's a comfort there, like you're saying. There's, it's a, there's a stability and something that is very constant that maybe is the reason those shows, if done well, like a Big Bang Theory, last for eight, nine, ten seasons, you know. 
Um, I think for me, when I look to create a show, it's all about the characters at first, because that's all anybody's coming back for is the characters. You want to give them good, interesting stories to keep people uh, to keep people interested, uh, you know, in, in the narrative each week. But it is about the characters. And then it's about where are you getting these stories? What is your story engine? And for me, Raising Hope, the fact that this baby is going to grow is a plus because I'm going to do be able to do parenting stories that you encounter when you're the baby's two. And then hopefully I'll be able to do character stories when she's four or five or six or whatever. So that can be changing. You know, with My Name is Earl, there was certainly a lot that changes week to week because he had a list item where you don't know where he was going to go. And a lot of times the story would be all about the person who he's trying to help on his list. But to me, that was a plus because I had my constants of the characters, the regular characters. So you felt that grounded, okay, I know these people, I know this world. But it it enabled me to have fun guest cast every week, all kinds of big names, and to do something different. So as a writer... To me, that's what kept it interesting. You know, I, whether or not it can succeed or not, I get, I will get bored if I'm going into season three of a show and it's the same old thing. You know, I mean, we, we put Earl in prison uh, in season three of My Name is Earl. A lot of people did not like that. You know, they, they, they were like, what are you doing? Why are you taking the show to prison for eight episodes? It's because, because I'm bored. I want to do something different. I want to shake it up. I'm doing the show for me at the end of the day and then hoping that enough people have the same sensibilities as I do. And if they didn't like the weird one or the strange thing we did, well, then maybe they'll come back next week. And I think that's why I love doing the guest book so much is there's no getting bored on the guest book. It's almost a completely different show each week. And I myself as a viewer, I love Black Mirror and uh, High Maintenance and these shows that are just completely different every week you know high maintenance you have the main character that so that you have that stable force uh, in, in the middle of it but at the same time you have no idea where it's going to go and just creatively that's that's interesting to me but like you said there's certainly certainly risks especially when you try to promote a show like the guest book it's like what are you going to put a house on a billboard? You know, I mean, that's that, it was a tough sell. You know, before we landed at TBS, at the time, nobody was doing anthology shows, no, no anthology comedies, um, and it was this fear of promoting it. How do you, how do you promote it? And I'm not so sure we ever, you know, figured that out a hundred percent. But, uh, but it's, it's, you know, it's a fun show to do, and it keeps me on my toes, which I enjoy. I had a client who was cast in a show you did that got the order started the shooting in the episodes a man who dear friend of yours who created the show with you yes dear and also created this show with you and he took his own life alan kirschenbaum mm-hmm. and you went through that you worked through that you knew him better than probably anybody else except maybe his father and yeah. his family yeah but you also on the guest book have worked with people who are struggling like Pete Davidson. Yeah. And everybody knows that any day you could get the call and he's next. How have you dealt with that throughout your career, knowing that you've worked with great people in the business, actors, writers, producers, who you know suffer through depression and mental illness? How do you handle it as a showrunner? How do you handle it as a friend? And how do you figure out how to avoid things tragically happening, even though you're helpless and hopeless when it comes to it. Yeah, I mean, Alan, uh, the whole Alan Kirschenbaum uh, thing was a, an, an unbelievable eye-opener for me about depression and the power of depression. I, you know, I, that was the first time I had ever encountered somebody going through real depression you know you have friends that are in the dumps and whatever but to look at your friend and we weren't working together at the time he had um a show on the air or the show that was being shot it never actually ended up on the air called friend me on cbs and he was having a tough time uh with the show and he was having a tough time with his life and he and i would go over and i would visit with him and i was in the middle of doing raising hope at the time and at one point I asked him just, you know, quit, quit this. 
you're 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 having trouble here. Just just quit. Come back over to Raising Hope. Who cares? So he had been working with you on Raising Hope, and then he left that show because he got the show Friend Me picked up by. What CBS. was his title on your show? Raising... He was a consulting producer got or co-executive producer, or something like you that. You brought him over, just as many people do. You create a show, but a guy doesn't have a gig. You bring him over. You exactly. pay him a little money. And he was so funny and so talented, and so to have him in the room was just huge. And so also, when he was at Raising Hope. You never saw this part of his personality. Never, never. And what that's that's the crazy thing because he had left to go do this other show, and then he was telling me he was having trouble, and I would go talk to him, and then we would get to the we would talk about different things that, that he was struggling with in his life, both personal and and professional. And but the scary thing was, um, you felt like you weren't talking to your friend. There was a there was a there was a light that had gone off, you know, and 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 he was very. Um, honest about the fact that he was having trouble and he just didn't know what was going on and uh and and so you as a friend you you counsel uh you talk you talk on the phone he became a little bit more withdrawn but you try to seek him out you get in your car you go over and you see him uh at the show where he's working and 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 you try to talk to him but you never in a million years think he would take his own life because you know him as one of the smartest people I've ever met in my life. And I, and I thought of him, I learned so much from him. And one of the most logical people that you've ever met in your life. And so the idea, uh, and, and, just, and just loved his wife and loved his daughter and, and had a love for life up until this point where something happened in his brain. And um, you would never think in a million years that that's what would happen. Um, and I remember getting the call uh, late at night that it that it had happened, and just being in complete shock. And really, you know, look, you 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 do as anybody would do, as his family members would do, as as his friends would do, and go, well, wait a second, where was I? Where where was I in this? You know, what what, what how 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 was I not just by his side every single minute? You know, making sure that this didn't happen, and it's. It's because you just can't fathom it. And and for me, like I said, this was a wake-up call because I I had never dealt with somebody with depression before. So if anything, what that has done is made me very alert to, to, to that, you know. And 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 uh, you know, and I've had a you know, I've had friends have struggles since and I do everything in my power to be there for them and talk to them and and and, and uh, but you know, luckily I haven't encountered that same type of depression yet. I like to think if I do, I'm I'm more equipped to to be helpful. Uh, you mentioned somebody like Pete Davidson. You know, he came and did our show. He was a great guy. We had a lot of fun. He's he's uh, he was there two days. You know, um, I read the stuff about him. You know, like everybody else does. I don't. You know, I had a text number for him. I don't think it works anymore. Um, he's not somebody I'm close with. You just hope that he's getting the support and help he needs from the people that are close to him. Um, you know, so, I would never presume that it's my place to go find a guy that I worked with for two days and uh, and 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 try to counsel him. But uh, but you know, it sounds like he has the people around him that he needs. And that wraps up part one of our podcast. I just wanted to thank my incredible partners, starting with Aquatrue, the revolutionary miniature countertop water purification system that works straight out of the box. Plug it in, fill it with tap water, and immediately turn your faucet into your favorite bottled water for pennies. You can get $100 off when you go to industrystandardwater.com and just type in the promo code Barry and start enjoying the best water you've ever had and never buy another bottle of water again. And I Killed JFK, the groundbreaking film about the only living person who admitted to killing Kennedy. Go to IKillJFK.com, buy the film and the rare interviews with five of the last living experts, and I guarantee it'll change your mind about what happened that day. And the Air Doctor, the innovative portable air purification system which will change your overall quality of life. It instantly removes dust, pet hair, mold, pollen, flu viruses, and other contaminants circulating in your home. 
normally $600. And if you don't believe me, check Amazon right now. But for a limited time, I can offer you 50% off. That's a $300 savings. Just go to airdoctorpro.com, type in the promo code Barry, and start breathing the cleanest and healthiest air in the world. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. And here's a preview of the next episode. My biggest pieces of advice is you need to be where and around the people who you want to be. And that's why I became a writer's uh, PA is because I wanted to be around the writers because so much, and you talk about this so much, it's connections. It's so much about connections. And you got to make your own connections. I didn't know anybody in Hollywood. I packed up my car and came out here. You got to make your own connections. Thank you so much for listening and have a great day. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money, drive that fancy car. All the people love you, cause you're going far. Life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain. It's never quite over, till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave, down in the valley. Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.